The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. just some things in life we simply can't live without, such as food, water, shelter, and perhaps the occasional podcast. These things keep us alive, but what about the things that make life really worth living? Goals that propel us, art that inspires us, experiences that fulfill us, and of course the one thing that's driven humanity to its greatest heights, love. But there can be a dark side to love as well. Because the more we care, the greater the potential to get hurt. Join me now as we take a look at the murder of Brad McGarry, an Ohio coal miner who left behind a grieving circle of friends in the wake of his cruel and untimely death. How love played a central role in his life and how the betrayal of that love ultimately led to his cold-blooded murder. On May 6, 2017, 46-year-old coal miner Brad McGarry made the hour-long drive from his home along the Ohio River to attend a family wedding in his hometown of Louisville, Ohio, a quaint village with a population of less than 200 in southeastern Ohio. Brad had come a long way since leaving home years ago to pursue his passion for cosmetology, but eventually found himself in the coal mining industry working for Murray Energy in Bel Air, Ohio. Once a thriving railroad hub in the early 20th century, Bel Air has a rich industrial history that spans generations of hardworking families who built their homes and livelihoods here. In fact, Bel Air's rusty steel truss bridges have become so iconic of the region's industrial aesthetic that they've appeared in Hollywood films such as Silence of the Lambs and Unstoppable with Denzel Washington. Unfortunately, like so many other Rust Belt communities, the town's fortunes began to dwindle in recent decades. With a population of less than 4,000, Bel Air covers just about 1.5 square miles, making it the kind of community where practically everyone knows everyone. And for a lovable, stylish character like Brad McGarry, it was the perfect place to be. For Brad, attending the wedding in his hometown of Louisville was the perfect excuse to return to his roots and spend quality time with his family. On May 7th, the day after the wedding, Brad found himself at his grandmother's house, sitting down to a good old-fashioned meal with friends and family. They were all there to continue the wedding celebration as a sort of after-party. There, Brad was surrounded by the people who loved him the most, and they had nothing but glowing terms of endearment to describe him. He was known as Uncle Brad to practically everyone, 
a devoted son and grandson, a beloved friend, and he had no shortage of admirers. While he was at the party, Brad received a text message in the early afternoon. His cousins, who were seated nearby, could tell that whoever or whatever was texted to him clearly had excited him. With a sly wink and a knowing smile, Brad soon excused himself from the gathering and drove back to Bel Air. His cousins knew exactly where he was going, to meet up with a special someone. What they didn't know was that it would be the last time they'd ever see Brad alive. Several hours after Brad left, his best friend David Kinney showed up to his place to return a weed trimmer he'd borrowed. 30-year-old David was a fellow coal miner who'd met Brad back in 2011 during a coal mining class. Since then, the two friends had become nearly inseparable, with David practically adopting Brad into his family. Along with David's wife Sherry and her three children from a previous relationship, Brad and the Kinneys did practically everything together. When David showed up at Brad's, he had his 13-year-old daughter and Sherry in tow. But when they knocked on the front door, there was no answer. So they tried calling Brad's phone, but it too went unanswered. That's when they sent David's daughter around the back of the house to try the other door. And to their surprise, it was unlocked. As they went inside and called out for him, there was still no sign of Brad. Something had to be wrong. When they stepped further into the home, they could see the place was in complete disarray, as if someone had ransacked it. Feeling uneasy, Sherry suggested David go back to the car to get his 40 caliber handgun, just in case. After retrieving the gun, David headed to the basement, instructing his wife and daughter to stay upstairs. And then, the silence was broken by a blood-curdling scream. Brad McGarry was dead. When police arrived on the scene, they found the Kinney family outside, distraught and in tears. David had just found his best friend laying face down on the floor of the basement with a pool of blood around his head. David was barely holding it together as officers began examining the crime scene. There, laying face down in a cluttered area on his basement floor, was Brad McGarry. It was obvious he'd been shot in the head, and at first, they couldn't rule out the possibility of suicide. But something was missing. The gun. After moving Brad's body to see if he'd fallen on top of the weapon, the officers discovered there wasn't one. It was a chilling realization. They were now looking at a murder. As investigators combed through Brad McGarry's ransacked home, they considered the possibility that his murder could have been the result of a botched robbery. But something didn't quite add up. All the valuables were still there, untouched. So they began to explore a new theory. Did Brad know his killer? Was there anyone who had motive to harm him? As they began to look deeper into Brad's personal life, officers began to ask his friends and family more questions. They wondered if there was a recent relationship that might have gone sour. But David, who was still reeling from the shock of finding his best friend's lifeless body, could only offer that Brad's last relationship had simply cooled off. The investigation had only just begun 
But already, it seemed Brad's murder was a puzzle with no clear solution. When the officers asked, who was the girl? David replied, it was a guy, Scott something. But David added he didn't think there'd been any bad blood between the two of them. When they questioned David about Brad's recent state of mind, he was adamant that nothing seemed out of the ordinary. The urgency to find Brad's killer was palpable. Brad had been like a brother to David, and he was willing to do anything to help bring justice to his friend's memory. But despite giving authorities the first name of Brad's last romantic interest and providing a written statement, detectives still didn't have much to go on. Would they be able to provide any further insight into Brad's personal life? And what other secrets might the investigation reveal? With no more information for detectives, David and Sherry promised to come to the station for a follow-up interview, and the Kenny family went home. Down in the basement of Brad's home, investigators meticulously combed through the crime scene, searching for any clues as to who could be responsible for Brad's death. Brad's lifeless body lay next to his hot tub, and upon closer examination, they made a chilling discovery. He hadn't been shot just once, but twice with a 22 caliber gun. The weapon, however, was nowhere to be found. As they scoured the rest of the home, they stumbled upon a 9mm handgun in Brad's bedside drawer, but it was clear it wasn't the murder weapon. But that wasn't the only oddity they uncovered. Amidst the disarray of Brad's home, they noticed that every drawer had been pulled open to the exact same distance, an unnatural occurrence in typical break-ins. It was another red flag, further confirming their suspicions that the scene had been staged. As investigators continued piecing together the evidence, it became more and more apparent that someone had come to Brad's house with a sinister intent to end his life. The only questions that remained were, who was it? and why. By this point, detectives really only had one lead to pursue, and that lead had come from David Kinney himself. Had Brad's most recent ex-boyfriend, Scott, somehow been involved in Brad's murder? There was only one way to find out. Track the man down. After finding out his address, detectives showed up at Scott's place, but he wasn't there. His mom was, though, and she told them exactly where they could find him. And they were in for a surprise, because Scott had an ironclad alibi, literally. He'd been in jail for the past three months, serving time for an unrelated crime. And when detectives told Scott about what had happened, he was just as shocked and distraught as everyone else. It seemed that almost everyone who knew Brad seemed to like and care about him. And the more people police spoke to, the more evident it became. They couldn't figure out who could possibly have wanted to murder him. As detectives continued their investigation, they discovered that Brad had been going through a tough time at work. The plant he'd worked at for years had shut down, and Brad was transferred to a new location. Being an openly gay man in a field traditionally dominated by straight men had its challenges. Nevertheless, Brad had persevered and gained the acceptance of his colleagues. Unfortunately, the new transfer meant he'd have to go through the process all over again, which was taking a bit of a toll on him. According to friends, when Brad got stressed, 
he often turned to alcohol. Drunk Brad was loud and sarcastic and could sometimes make a scene, but there was nothing really out of the ordinary about any of that. Detectives knew they had to find out who Brad was planning to meet up with on the day he disappeared, but so far were coming up empty-handed. After almost two days of non-stop detective work, they finally struck gold. It was like finding that elusive missing puzzle piece, and they found it when they talked to Brad's cousin, Skylar. She'd flown in from Florida to attend the family wedding, and just happened to be sitting next to Brad and some of the other cousins when he received that mysterious text message. Now, Skylar was well aware of Brad's sexual orientation, and was keen to know more about the message that had him so excited. So she asked him who it was from. Brad didn't hold back and told her it was from a certain DJ. He had made it abundantly, unequivocally, actually clear that DJ was coming over and they were going to be having sex. He called it a nap and then made a wink and said that they were gonna be having sex. According to Skylar, DJ, was a married man that Brad had been having a years-long affair with. It was a complicated relationship and the source of plenty of drama in Brad's life. But when DJ texted Brad on May 7th, he was ready and willing to drop everything to head home and take a nap with him. But who was DJ? Skylar then dropped a bomb that would crack the case wide open. I guess they call him DJ or David Kenny. Yes, it's the only guy, it's the only guy he's ever told me about. It's just, it's the guy, that's him, okay. that's him. The revelation was a complete shock. Brad's best friend, who discovered him in the first place, had been his secret lover all along. And despite David's promise to help the investigation in any way he could, he'd kept this vital piece of information concealed. But why? Was it to protect his reputation? Or was there a more sinister reason? Either way, it was clear. Detectives needed to speak to David again and find out what else he might be hiding. David and his wife Sherry were called down to the station for follow-up interviews separately. And at first, David seemed cooperative, even offering to hand over his phone for the investigation. A gesture of good faith, or was it? Little did David know, authorities already had an idea about what they might find. In the interrogation room, the detective started with some routine questions, but it was clear David was on edge, barely holding it together. What was going through his mind? Only time would tell. Where'd you meet Brad? Uh, coal mine classes. Okay. We carpooled. Did you say you were his best friend? Yes, sir. You got real close with our family got real close. We did holidays and gatherings and everything together. Your wife too? Yes, sir. Like he came over for like what, Christmas and stuff? Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, we did the same with him. Which kid's calling? Uncle Brad. Oh, he's hard on him. We forever? It's okay. Hate the first huge piece of crying in the I don't know, man. I've just been trying so hard to. Meanwhile, 
Detectives searching David's cell phone made some startling discoveries. You guys are pretty close, weren't you? Yes, sir. <laughs> Here's some stuff on your fence, little, little questionable. Yes, sir. What, what, uh, how close were you and Brad? Very close. How close were you guys? We were very close. Devon, great. Best friend. Did you guys have sex together? There's a few times in the past where, you know, he's attempted a lot and we've kind of fooled around a little bit in the past. It's okay. Hey, look. Uh, I'm being old. What year is it? Well, this is 2017. This is between us, okay? Yes, sir. But there's some stuff on your phone. Did anybody know about you guys? Uh. My wife doesn't end up fooled around before. I mean, that was... When was the last time you guys fooled around? It's... It's been a while. It hasn't been recently. I know that. Is that what's on your phone? The guy... The video you took of the guys having sex? Is that Brad and you, or...? The video I took. Yeah, it's on your phone. Not only could detectives access everything on David's cell phone, they had the technology to access what David had deleted as well. A treasure trove of evidence that pointed to a relationship that went far beyond best friends or brotherly love. And that sounds like you and Brad were boyfriend, boyfriend. No, oh, no, sir. We weren't boyfriend, boyfriend. It was uh, kind of a shock to us. Was, was Brad in love with you, David? No, I... I couldn't tell you that he was in love with me. I mean, we did the whole, all right, bud, love you, love you too, kind of thing. Like, you could ask my son when we left Saturday. It was, he said, he was calling him in his trash can that's going to the lab. Oh. Yes, sir. I got a feeling your DNA is going to be on that condom. Oh, no, sir. No? You sure? Yes, sir. Never? No, sir. Although David claimed that his sexual involvement with Brad had been minimal and only in the past, the evidence from David's phone suggested something much more. This combined with corroborating testimony from Brad's friends made it clear that the relationship between Brad and David was actually somewhat serious, certainly from Brad's perspective at least. But the detective interviewing David had also uncovered another piece of valuable information. David? Yes, sir. We've got some problems, bud. What's that? Oh, my. I sent out five detectives today. And yes, sir. Larry PD and everybody, and they did they interviewed a bunch of people. And all these people said you and Brad had been seeing each other for years, sexually. Like, you guys have been a secret couple. And that they said your wife knows about it. She yes, just found out about it. Yes, she, she wanted to get a marriage in counseling? No, sir. My wife knows nothing about it. Me and Brad. Sure, she does not. But I don't know who would have told you that she knows. Four different people. I'm unrelated. No, this sir. Brad told them. No, sir. Brad told them this. No, sir. Brad lost all that weight because he wanted to keep you. No, sir. My wife has no idea about this. Brad wanted you to leave her? No, sir. He's even told me before, like, I understand you're not going to leave your wife and kids. According to the detective, Four separate witnesses had claimed that David's wife had become suspicious of Brad and David's relationship about six months earlier. But when she confronted him, David completely denied it. 
And if that wasn't enough, Brad was also becoming increasingly frustrated with the relationship that seemed destined to go nowhere. He was getting tired of keeping secrets and playing second fiddle, and was trying to convince David to leave his family, but David refused. And then, Brad threatened to expose their entire relationship. From the detective's perspective, it was certainly sounding like a possible motive for murder. But motivation alone isn't enough to convict someone of murder. They needed to put David at the scene of the crime. And it just so happened, the detectives had received a powerful piece of evidence to confront David with. Evidence that would place him at the scene of the crime, not once, but twice. You in Blair at all? The day this happened before your car showed up? The day it happened before? The day of the murder. Were you in Blair at all? Yes, sir. I told you that when the were Before it happened. Yes, sir. Oh, God, sir. I... David, relax. We're just talking. Little did David know, fate had other plans in store for him. You see, it just so happened that one of Brad's neighbors was the chief of police. And as luck would have it, a neighbor that also just so happened to have some surveillance footage that showed David's car heading straight to Brad's house at exactly 2 p.m. That was around the same time that Brad would have left the family gathering after the wedding and a full hour before Brad himself arrived home. So you, you drove by his house, you didn't stop? No, sir. I drove by his house and he was not home. I put it in it. It's in my phone. Sir, I, I swear. I I, listen, you drove by, he wasn't home. How long were you there? I wasn't there that long. How long? I could, I don't know. This is, oh my you God, say, you just, sir. You're telling me you just drove by. Did you stop at all? I drove by the house. I pulled off. He was not home. David's explanation was simple enough. A quick stop at Brad's empty house before taking off again. But as investigators reviewed the surveillance footage, a different story emerged. On top of the footage showing David arriving at Brad's house, the camera also showed him lingering for much longer than he'd let on. And just as Brad returned home from the family function, David was seen leaving, just 15 minutes before Brad's murder is believed to have taken place. It was a damning piece of evidence, placing David at the scene of the crime at the exact moment it happened. The subsequent events unfolded like a staged performance, with David returning to the house later, in the company of his wife and daughter, using the flimsy excuse of returning a weed trimmer. All the while, David's story about accidentally discovering Brad's body was starting to unravel, and the facts were not looking good for David, and he knew it. You guys really think? Seriously? I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to tell you a thing. I'm going to tell, tell you. David, look at me. I'm going to tell you I know. I knew you had something to do with Brad's death. What else could it be? Oh my God. <laughs> The detective was done playing Mr. Nice Guy with David, and it was time to turn up the heat and get to the bottom of things. What had really unfolded the day Brad was shot, only David knew for sure, and he was about to find out that he couldn't keep his secrets hidden forever. And you were at his house. Yes, sir. I'm the murderer. You were there. Oh, God. We know exactly when he was killed. 
Yes, sir, I know. You were there when he was killed. No, sir, I was not at his house when that man was See, murdered, sir. The, I can't... This is the kind of shit that gets people in trouble. Oh, my God, I know. So, you had to get with it, but... Sir, what do you want me? I'll tell you, you anything. Tell I don't know what happened. What? Oh, my God. What are you telling me? Well, there's nothing I'm not telling you. I did not kill Brad. I did not kill Brad. Did your wife kill Brad? Oh my god, no. Dude, what the hell's going on? (laughs) David's world was beginning to crash down around him. Caught red-handed at Brad's house during the time of the murder, his emotional outbursts were now beginning to seem like more guilt than grief. The detective had had enough of his inconsistencies and decided to lay it all out. No more beating around the bush. It was time to confront David with what they believed really happened to Brad. The pressure was on, and David was about to crack. All the doors pulled up and up stolen. What's it tell you? Somebody panicked. That's what, and listen, y'all might be wrong because I wasn't there. But what I saw there, what I read, what I've been trained to read. Yes, sir. What I saw, what I believed, is somebody panicked. And opened all the drawers in the house to make it look like something. And he was like, what do I do? Yes, sir. Authorities had pieced together a compelling theory, and it had David rattled. He knew time was running out, and the walls were closing in on him. The detective knew that David was in over his head, but they were willing to offer him a lifeline if David would only cooperate. The stakes were high, and David had a choice to make. Would he come clean? Or would he continue to hide behind his lies? Let me tell you something. This is, I'm probably gonna get a lot of grief over this, but I got a theory. I think it might've been an accident. I think that maybe somebody was around, accidentally shot him, and then panicked. Didn't think anybody believed him. And call me crazy. That's what I believe. Yes, sir, I understand. I did not Brad, Brad went down quick. I'm going to tell you something. Yes, sir. Think about it. This is the most important moment in your life. Yes, sir. I know. I'm about to lose everything, I feel like. David, you are going to lose everything. I'll tell you that right now. You are going to lose everything. You lose your wife. You lose your kids. You're going to go you lose the rest of your life. Look at me. Don't do it for a mistake. You got a chance to come clean and tell me. Oh, oh, yeah. shh, look, look at me. Look at me. We're past sir. The detective had given David a way out, an escape route from the mess he'd found himself in, and suddenly David began to change his tune as another version of what happened began to unravel. Brad called me. He wanted me to meet up with him at his house before me and the wife and kids came out. Great. So I went to his house and I sat there and I waited on him and I waited on him. And he shows up. He had another guy with him okay. i don't know who he was i don't know his name okay. i swear on everything that's okay. holy right it's now what he was they get out of the car i go walking over Brad said we're gonna unload unload the back of his bmw what was it uh his suitcase okay. uh brad grabbed his suitcase the guy grabbed uh, what I think was a black duffel bag and okay. made something else out of it. Sure. What happened next? He went in the garage. Okay. 
As David spun his new version of events, detectives quickly realized his story was falling apart at the seams. In fact, it sounded even less believable than his original version. But for a moment, they decided to play along. They knew that sometimes, the best way to catch a liar is to give them enough rope so they can hang themselves. The question was, how long could David keep up the charade? Tell me, what happened next? I was so f***ing scared. What happened? You heard a gunshot. You heard a gunshot? Yes, sir. Then what happened? I went running back to my car. Uh-huh. And the guy came running out of the garage. Okay. And he got into Brad's BMW. Okay. And then I left. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Okay. It's okay. <laughs> Who's this guy? I don't know. Uh, what time was this? Ten till. Quarter till ten till. Okay. So quarter till ten till. One. Oh God! All my way home, I kept saying, "I need to call the cops. I need to call the cops. I need to call the cops." I didn't know what happened. Hey, look at me. I'm a cop. You're telling me now. Okay? Oh my God. Tell me what this guy looks like. Oh, can I stand up because... Yeah, I don't care. Can you stand up? Yeah. About your height? About my height? Yes, sir. Uh, athletic. He had an athletic belt, but he kind of looked a little dirty. David's story was becoming more convoluted by the minute, now claiming Brad had brought a mysterious, athletic, dirty-looking man to the rendezvous who then shot him? But detectives weren't buying it. It was clear he was trying to deflect the blame onto someone else, anyone else, to avoid taking responsibility of his own actions. There's a couple things you need to know. <sighs> so you say, you say Brad and this guy pulled in with the Beamer? Yes, sir. Okay. Brad's front seat, the Beamer was full of stuff that he brought from the wedding. Yes, sir. He didn't have a passenger. Oh my God! David, the evidence... It's not me! That this guy wasn't there. There was? Where did he go? Did he fly? What else, what else would I have? There... He got to show out. What? No, sir, I swear to God, sir. I swear to God. I'm creeping away from you because you're going to get struck by lightning. Oh, my God. This is all going to come yeah. down on me now. Because you did it. No, oh, sir, I did not kill my best friend. Hey, David, <laughs> listen. I, like I told you, I was all with you there for a while. Sir, I did not kill my best friend. You're kind of insulting me. I did not kill him. I swear to God, sir, I don't know. Is that your wife? No, sir. You sure? Yes, sir. You don't want to go, have to go ask her. No, sir, that's fine. The detective was tired of David's games, and he couldn't hold his frustration back any longer. And the dam finally burst. Why did you do this elaborate story? Why did you put... You put your own daughter in that basement with that body. You did that. Yes, sir. And you knew he was down there. So, damn it, put screw in your family. Sir, I am... Tell me what happened. I did not kill him. You knew Brad was dead? And you brought your I daughter? I did not know he was dead. You knew he... Oh, my God. Brad is dead, David. Okay. Yes, sir. I did not kill you him. You loved him. Yes, sir. He doesn't deserve this. No, sir. He doesn't. Oh, your, my God. Your best friend's dead. You're telling me 
that you went to this elaborate way to cover up everything by taking your own daughter to the scene where the body no, was? No, sir. Why would I do that? You I did, did not know that he was dead, sir. I but swear to God. You just knew that there was a guy in there shooting the place up, and you come back a couple hours later after you texted a dead man wanting to know where he was at. I mean, you want to keep spinning it. That's fine, David. It was time for the detective to get real with David, and he didn't pull any punches. David was forced to come face to face with how people were going to see him. You're hurting. I saw it that night. I couldn't as close to bring you here that night. You look so sad. More sad than you should. You understand? You were very upset. You know why you're upset? Because you're not a total piece of shit. But that story we're going to pay to you, they're going to write stories about it. The news going to love it. Jury's going to love it. There is no way in hell. Anybody's ever going to buy this book, repeated book story that you give us. I'm not buying it. The detectives had been relentless in their pursuit of the truth, and their efforts finally paid off. David had been backed into a corner, and there was no denying the facts. He'd been at the scene of the crime, and all the evidence pointed toward him. The time for lies and deception was over. It was time for David to face the consequences of his actions and finally come clean. It got real loud with me. It got kind of like up in my face. He had a, one of those little derringers. Okay. We sat there and argued and fought and fought. Okay. They kept yelling at me, you need to leave your wife forever long enough you know you love me you need to leave your wife you want to be with me and I told him no okay and he pulled that little derringer out he's had it for a while I got it off of some guy over in Wheeling or something okay. like that a long time ago what happened when we pulled a derringer out I freaked out it's okay now it's important to keep in mind that even when criminals appear to be coming clean and confessing this doesn't necessarily mean they're telling the whole truth, or even the truth at all. So it was with a highly skeptical ear, the detective listened to David's latest story. Tell me what happened next. He had it in his hand, just kind of like waving at me, you know what I mean? Okay. Telling me, you know, you're up, I'm tired of you, I can't believe my emotions this long just to call it quits. Okay. The normal girlfriend, boyfriend kind of thing you have. He just kept telling me, you know, I can't believe you do this to me. I can't believe you do this to me. And what happened? He kept waving at me and so I grabbed it. Okay. What happened after you grabbed it? I pushed him. Okay. Then what happened? I shot him. Why'd you shoot him? He was coming at me with his gun, man. What? I thought you said you took his gun from him. I did. So you had another gun? No, the Derringer. Oh, you take his gun from him. Yes, sir. You said you shot him. Yes, sir. Tell me why you shot him. I felt threatened. David was claiming that Brad had escalated the conflict by pulling a gun on him, but David had been able to disarm him. And even though at this point, Brad was unarmed, David still claimed he felt threatened enough to justify killing Brad in self-defense. You guys a Derringer? Yes, sir. How many times did you shoot him? Once, Thank you, yeah. and then once I pushed him, I hit him with it. Where? In the head. Show me where you hit him with it. I don't even know. It, was, it happened so fast. Okay. It did. It happened so fast. I believe that. 
So you shot him once, then you hit him with the gun? No, I meant like I hit him. I shot him. Oh, you shot him? Yes, sir. Okay. How many shots did the deer in your hole? Two caliber. That's 22. Okay. Where is it? I freaking chucked it. At the end of the interrogation, detectives still weren't fully buying into David's claims of self-defense, but they finally had their confession. David admitted he'd gone to Brad's house and there'd been an argument. That's when Brad brought out the gun. As they struggled over the weapon, David admitted to shooting Brad once, presumably in self-defense, and then shooting him again while he lay helpless on the floor of his basement. David then drove away and tossed the gun. It was never recovered. The whole time David had been at the station, his wife Sherry had been there waiting. Detectives decided it was time to bring her in and let David tell her what they already knew. But as David began to lay it all out for his wife, the details of his story began to shift once again. It was as if he couldn't keep his story straight, constantly changing the narrative in an effort to salvage what was left of his marriage. I need to know that you have my back and that everything I'm telling you is the truth from here, okay? And I love you and the kids. And don't want you to be there for me, okay? Brad had another gun at the house. He had a 22 there in here. I went to Brad's house to meet up with him after the wedding. He was fighting with me because he had some money. Come up missing and I didn't take them. Brad, I never stole money. Brad, he always gave me. It was done to me. Listen, just listen to me. One day, Thompson, I told him, I said, listen, from here on out, it's just friends, you, you can't be anything more else because Brad is, you know, how Brad goes with me. Okay? He forgot to me. He put down, listen to me, please just let me talk, Sherry, will you please let me talk? He flipped down on me, and he grabbed the 22 there and turned he, before he even did that, he slapped me around a little bit after I told him this was it. Okay? You are kidding. Listen. <laughs> I'm kidding. I don't look at you. Sherry, he came at me with that gun, okay? He came at me with that gun because I said, <laughs> he, wanted me, he wanted me to leave you guys. I was sorry, Sherry. I know. What would you do? Uh -huh. Someone would come at you, babe. What would you do if someone come at you? Uh -uh. Oh my God. As you can hear from the audio, David's wife Sherry was in complete shock. Not only was it final confirmation that her husband had been having an affair with his best friend, to find out that he'd murdered him to keep the affair quiet must have been devastating. Eventually, the detective came back in the room and separated Sherry from David because it was time for him to be processed and charged with first-degree murder. The trial of David Kinney began in February 2018, about nine months after Brad's murder. When Sherry testified, she revealed that on the day of the murder, David had taken the family out to eat before leaving them at home, only to return later acting completely normal, even helping her dye her hair. It was as if nothing was out of the ordinary until they arrived at Brad's house, where they discovered the horrific scene. According to witnesses, 
when Sherry became suspicious about the relationship between Brad and David towards the end of 2016. David suggested to Brad that they break up, but remain friends, and Brad was unhappy about it. So unhappy, in fact, that he threatened to expose their relationship to Sherry. A threat, prosecutors would argue, was the motive behind David's heinous crime. When it came to the subject of the murder weapon, no one could corroborate that Brad owned a 22 caliber Derringer, an important detail in David's claim that Brad had introduced the weapon into their argument. It left open the possibility that David had been the one to bring the gun, planning an ambush all along. But the most damning piece of evidence against David's self-defense claim came from the autopsy of Brad's body. It turned out that Brad had been shot twice in the back of his head, wounds that weren't indicative of self-defense. According to forensic evidence, the first shot entered and exited Brad's scalp from close range and wouldn't have killed him if he'd received quick medical treatment. But the second shot, angled and likely a contact or close to it, was fatal. The trout took eight days and on February 14th, 2018, David was found guilty of aggravated murder, which carried a life sentence. But it would be up to the judge to decide whether David would be sentenced to life with or without the possibility of parole. The defense argued that David had no prior history of violence and could one day again be a contributing member of society. The judge disagreed. If this man was able to do an assassin's job to someone he loved and his best friend, what could he do to his enemy or someone who opposed him? David's apologies to Brad's family didn't sway the judge, who handed down the harshest possible punishment available to him. The defendant shall serve life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus three years beyond life in prison. It was either incredibly ironic or incredibly sad that a man who murdered because of love was sentenced on Valentine's Day. Love can be the greatest source of joy in our lives. It can be the reason we get out of bed every morning or whistle during our daily walk or how we get through every day knowing that there's someone to come home to after a tough day of work. But sometimes love can be complicated our circumstances, our perceptions, or even our own feelings can make it a source of great pain, unrequited love, heartbreak, or simply not being able to be with the one person who makes life feel worth living. For Brad McGarry, having his best friend and boyfriend wrapped up into one wonderful person must have felt like winning the lottery. When David tried ending their relationship to keep his secret hidden, it would have devastated anyone. For David Kinney, hiding such an important part of his life, sneaking around, betraying the people he loved day in and day out, eventually, something had to give. And for David, it was his very humanity. There was simply no way that David could have entangled himself from the deceptive web he'd created without breaking the heart of someone close to him. And he was forced to choose one or the other. Instead, he broke the hearts of everyone he knew, but it didn't have to be that way.
In an article published by Oxygen.com, someone close to Brad was quoted as saying, When I saw that David Kinney had confessed to the murder of my uncle, it was kind of surreal. I feel as if he could have expressed himself and came out to others. He could have been with my uncle right now. A detective from the sheriff's office told them, It's such a tragedy that he felt so intimidated that he was willing to murder somebody that obviously loved him and cared about him to keep that a secret. It's really just sad for everyone. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also, by checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week... Thanks for listening.